Welcome, it is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, all over the place these days, including the internet, the series of tubes, and, well, the radio, where you're probably listening. If you want to call in and be a part of the program, you're more than welcome to. I, we will allow it. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Have you ever had, we, we'll, I don't even want to start here. I got other stuff I, I want to start with, but it, have you ever just, you, you sometimes wonder, you get in a situation, you're like, well, why do I even bother? I I woke up today uh, and noticed this, this peculiar trend among people I, I have considered and still do consider friends. And it, it's, it's the willful cherry picking of data to make a case as opposed to looking at all of the data. So for example, I, I you know, I, I monitor the virus, the spread of the virus. I try to bring you guys up to speed. And if you listen to the left these days, we're all going to die. It's going to be miserable. It's all Donald Trump's fault. And uh, everybody's going to get the virus. Hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. Chaos is going to ensue. It's the end of America as we know it. And then you look at, at conservatives and, and well, nope, it's, it's actually they're overstating the hospitalizations, they're overstating all the data, they're overstating uh, the deaths, uh, the, the media is amplifying this, it's all to get Donald Trump. And, and I'm just sitting here thinking, I, I, I don't think either one of these is true. And when you point that out, it, it's just, you're, you're not allowed to. It's like you're, you're going against your own side and you're a heretic. And I, I've always found heretics to be fascinating people. Um, but you know, my, my orthodoxy is, is biblical orthodoxy as, as, as far as the political prevailing political winds of the day, uh, my goodness, I still think limited government matters. And, and you would think that conservatism these days was all about a spending spree. And it's just, it's, it's painful to see people who I, I think are good people. I know them and I like them cherry picking data and on both sides too, on both sides, uh, you, you got people on the right who want you to think that this is no big deal. No one's going to die and, and the death rate is going to be uh, no no worse than the flu. And you got people on the left who want you to think that, that everyone is going to be annihilated from this virus. And and where the actual data is and, and what you do and, and not cherry picking data, it actually matters. Who you listen to actually matters. You know, there are experts who will tell you whatever you want to hear. There are experts who will tell you boys can become girls and girls can become boys. There are experts who will tell you that uh, the sky is falling. I mean, there are experts who will tell you, you can you can cherry pick your experts. So for example, um, if you believe that vaccines cause autism, you can find experts who back up your conclusions. If you believe that uh, essential oils are a, a cure for cancer, you, and believe me, there are people who believe that that essential oils cure cancer. I know because I get pamphlets all the time because my wife has cancer. My wife uh, has some essential oils for stuff. But, man, there are some people who think it cures everything. And they've got experts. they they got experts to back them up. There are experts who can do a frame-by-frame frame, uh, look at the moon and show you why the lunar landing was a fraud. Uh, Apollo 11, I think today was the date it landed on the moon, I do believe. Um, there are experts who can tell you that uh, the coronavirus is actually uh, nothing worse than the sniffles, not really a big deal, and no one really dies from it. Uh, there are experts who can tell you that the, uh, the death toll is being overstated by orders of magnitude uh, because people are being counted for COVID-19 if they, if they died of a, of a, a – if they bled to death because of a paper cut but they tested positive for the disease. There are experts who will tell you that everyone is going to die. We can't get a handle on the virus. 
and, and that it, nothing is going to work. There are experts who will tell you masks work. There are experts who will tell you masks don't work. There are experts who will tell you anything you want to hear under the sun. The question is, which experts should you listen to? And what we're finding these days is that uh, you listen to the experts who tell you what you already believe, as opposed to the experts who actually have a level of expertise and in question. You know, I get angry emails from people all the time that uh, I am I've changed my mind on something. Well, yes. You know, back in February and March, I was, I mean, just just use masks as, as a very small point. I don't want to belabor the point on masks today. But uh, in February and March, the experts were saying it, it was it was no big deal. Don't wear a mask. Only the sick people needed it. And then they discovered that uh, the virus spreads like it spreads because most of the people who are spreading it actually appear to be healthy, but they're infected and just don't know it yet. So if everyone wore a mask, it would help. Uh, and then I get, well, California has had a mask mandate since the middle of June and the virus is skyrocketing. Yes, that's true. But did you know that California hasn't enforced it? In fact, Los Angeles County, Los Angeles County has issued one citation in a month for someone not wearing a mask uh, and they haven't enforced it. They're only now beginning to enforce it. There are answers to the questions out there, and sometimes you have to take a, a holistic approach, a whole health approach, and look at all of the experts to try to figure out what exactly is going on. Uh, but you can, to some degree, get answers. Uh, what I find deeply troubling on both sides right now is this desire not to get to the truth of the matter, but to the truth that you want of the matter, to get to what you already wanted to hear. That if you are predisposed to think that uh, everyone is destroyed, uh, then you're going to find all of the data that shows you that everything is wiped out, you are annihilated, and this is the end of the world. If you are predisposed to believe that this is all an effort to get Donald Trump, to own Donald Trump, to corrupt Donald Trump, and, and to ruin Donald Trump and his reputation, well, then guess what? You are going to find all of the evidence to show you that this is a political conspiracy to wipe out Donald Trump. All I'm trying to do is figure out what the actual truth is. Uh, and sometimes it works for me. Sometimes it works against me. Let, let, let me actually, I, I wasn't going to go down this road, but now that I've done, I'm this far in, I might as well. Let me tell you, um, it, the media right now would have you believe that Florida, Texas, Arizona, Georgia, uh, notice they never mentioned California, that they are wiped out. And in being wiped out, uh, that their hospitals are going to be overrun and everyone is going to die and and it, it's a life over as we know it because hospitals are going to be overrun. And look how much better New York City is now. The reality is that hospitalizations in Florida and Georgia and Texas and Arizona, they are on the uptick and in some parts of the states are in critical condition. But it's not whole states. It is parts of states. It is cities and states. Uh, it is it is not overwhelming state capacity. It's overwhelming certain hospitals. And states are rearranging and reprioritizing resources to make ends meet. In Georgia, we had the Phoebe Putney situation here in South Georgia. That is a pastor came in, preached a funeral, two funerals rather. He was infected. He did not know it. He spread it throughout the congregation. Uh, Phoebe Putney in Darty County, Georgia, uh, had to handle everything. It was uh, per capita the third worst hit place in the world outside of uh, Italy and New York at the time. And they had to expand capacity. They had to use outpatient centers. They had to uh, use overflow capacity, but they did it and they managed. And that was left out of the story. 
that they did it. They managed it, and that the governor of Georgia, who is much maligned for daring to allow people uh, to go about without masks, although he's urging them to, the, they, they never gave the governor credit for helping. Now, the governor would tell you that the credit actually deserved to be with local people and local sources and lo- the local hospital and the local facilities and the local staff, and the local first responders. But it was the governor who made sure that uh, state resources were appropriately sent as needed to that area to cover the flow. In Florida, the national media is destroying Ron DeSantis in a way they never did Andrew Cuomo. And there are some ports of Florida, Miami in particular, where the virus is spreading and is problematic uh, and not uh, not not going well. But there are other parts of the state where they're okay. Jacksonville, Florida, for example, is not Miami. And the national press is treating the entire state as if it is Miami, which isn't doing very well right now because of the flow of the virus. And given the way the media is talking about it and and referring to it as a swing state, you can almost get the suggestion that they're covering it with the greatest amount of fear just because they want to scare voters into not voting for Donald Trump. Now, at the same time, there are people on the right who want you to think that uh, even in those cases where hospitals are being overrun in South Florida, that they're really not being overrun, even though they are. They want you to think having refrigerator trucks for for all the dead bodies really isn't a big deal. And they want you to think that that all the research is bad on mass. You know, it's, it, it's very funny. I saw a bunch of conservatives uh, circulating a research project from a woman, uh, a, a scientist who studied mass and said that masks actually aren't that great except for first responders need them. And uh, cloth masks themselves in these situations aren't great. Uh, ben Smith at the New York Times interviewed this woman whose study is being circulated by conservatives to debunk the ideas of masks. And she she says, wait a second, I did two studies, one on community use of masks and one in first responder use of masks. And the community use of masks study actually shows that cloth masks, when done right, actually do help, uh, but not in first responder settings. And in the first responder study, we looked at cloth masks versus surgical masks and found out the surgical masks actually work better than the cloth masks and that first responders need access to the uh, better masks than the cloth masks. But in the community, they can use the cloth masks. And now she's being accused of double speak and of retracting studies and bowing to pressure when she's like, no, I did two completely separate studies, one on community use of masks and one in first responder use of masks. And they came out with different data. First responders shouldn't use cloth masks. The community can, provided they meet certain construction criteria. But you listen to certain conservatives out there, you think this woman's debunked the use of masks. Everybody seems to be cherry picking what they want to hear, which, you know, it it suggests to me that people really aren't interested in the truth per se. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in what they want to hear. And this is on both sides. This this is not a blanket condemnation of one side or the other. It's just a frustration. I think we can probably find our way through this, but I have to acknowledge that it makes it harder to find our way through what's going on right now when you have so many experts out there who are political, who have politicized this thing, that you got a lot of people on either side who don't want to hear them. I I think the expert who goes on Fox News has as much legitimacy as the expert who goes on CNN. But CNN would have you not believe anyone who goes on Fox and Fox would have you not believe anyone who goes on CNN. Maybe you can synthesize their opinion. Sometimes you can't. And, you know, sometimes there are contrarians. Sometimes you you get people out there who do cherry pick the data and say, no, 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 don't pay attention to any of this. Pay attention to only this one single point. There's got to be some truth out there.
and I can I can tell you where I am on the truth of this right now. Uh, the virus is worse than a lot of people on the right think it is. It is overwhelming hospitals more than people on the right think it is, uh, but it is not nearly as bad as people on the left think it is. The mortality rate is not going to be as high as people on the left think it's going to be. And uh, hospitals, some of them are in isolated cases getting overwhelmed, but overall hospitals are doing okay. I hope we can reconcile all these things together, but apparently we're not allowed to. We got to pick our tribal voices. I'm just, I'm, I'm not into, you know, I, I, I get all the time now from people that, that I'm not a conservative. Um, I've been active in the conservative movement and, and I, I, that I'm not a conservative. I don't support X, Y, and Z. I must not be conservative. I always thought to me, conservatism meant limited government, uh, decrease federal spending, increased power to the states, uh, fiscal responsibility, and traditional conservative values. Kind of blended a Judeo-Christian thought and and the nuclear family with limited government, individual responsibility. I tell people all the time I'm a conservative because I want as few sinners in charge of me as possible. Meanwhile, the Republican Party is bankrupting the country with the Democratic Party uh, collaborating with them. The national debt is over $23 trillion. And you point all this, oh, no, you're not a conservative. You, you ain't Trump. You can't be a conservative. All I'm doing is pointing out that the party of fiscal responsibility and limited government has given us a, a national debt that's over $23, $24 trillion. And yes, I was someone who was saying for the entire time Obama was president that he was going to bankrupt the country. And the GOP at the time was all about, you know, we, we've got to do what, sequestration? we got to stop the spinning. we got to cut the budget. And Obama was, no, 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 let's just raise taxes. And the GOP, nope, we're not going to raise taxes. And finally was able to get sequestration through. It was the first meaningful real-world cuts we had had since the uh, Clinton budget amendment in 1998 that balanced the budget. Nowadays, whichever party is in power thinks spending is a good thing. And, and I'm we're going to bankrupt this country, and it's going to be a whole lot of people who say it's the conservative thing to do, and it's not. Um, man, I, I, I don't know how the world decided to, to go upside down these days. What's up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right. It makes no sense to me. All I want to do is figure out what the heck is going on right now in the world. And what is going on in the world right now is there is a global pandemic and neither side seems really interested in getting to the truth. They just want to score political points on the other side. And that's kind of infuriating, particularly when, like me, you know people who have died of this virus and you would like to see it go away. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The program this hour is brought to you by Dynamic Money. Dynamicmoney.com is their website, uh, and I am a client of theirs. I have been a client of theirs for some time, uh, and they manage my 401k. They manage my retirement, but they do more than that. Uh, my wife and I several years ago decided we needed to do a better job of budgeting, getting our finances in order and paying off debts. And we were looking at uh, Dave Ramsey's program and uh, started to head down that way. But there were some things uh, like uh, no credit cards and stuff like that, that just given what I do for a living weren't very practical. And we were willing to, to bite the bullet and go, but had a couple of people recommend dynamic money uh, here in Georgia. And we went that route instead, uh, got to know them. Chris Burns now of dynamic money is a guest host here. And it has been remarkable for our peace of mind. We were able to go on vacation this year and not float debt on our credit card. 
in large part because one of the things Dynamic Money does very good is they sit down with you like a uh, physician and they review all of your records and, and refer you out to certain specialists to do certain things. So uh, being able to refinance our house and getting money out of it to pay off some debts, uh, being able to wipe out credit card debt, being able to use a particular interest-bearing checking account and automatically set up money to flow to it every week when I get paid uh, to be able to build up a savings account, to be able to build up an emergency reserve fund, to be able to build up fund for vacation, stuff like this that, that I, I never thought of. There's so many financial products out there right now you can take advantage of. Uh, even uh, when interest rates are so low, you can find better interest rates, and that's what they do. It's their specialty. You send them, for example, your car insurance, your home insurance. They look at it and say, hey, you can get a better deal from this insurance company instead. And the thing that I appreciate most about them is that they are completely a, a fee-run company, meaning they're not going to charge you a commission and sell you a product. So many financial planners, particularly for people in the middle class, uh, as opposed to high-income earners, want to charge you a commission and say, hey, get this life insurance through us and not tell you that they're going to make a commission. Uh, Dynamic Money is a... a completely fee operated business. They're not going to charge you money and sell you a product. Uh, they're going to do a flat fee review of your finances. They're going to help you with your 401k. If you allow them to manage your 401k, they take a, a percentage like every other uh, financial manager does. They are really good for your peace of mind. If you need to get better at managing your money, balancing your budget and, and look into the future and planning, you really should reach out to the team at Dynamic Money. Uh, DynamicMoney.com is their website. I cannot recommend them enough. Uh, they have helped me and my family tremendously. Uh, it's great to be able to endorse a product on radio that I was a customer of uh, before they were an advertiser, and and that's the situation with them. So thanks to them for sponsoring the show. The, the president has a 50% problem in the new Wall Street Journal NBC poll. Uh, they've been talking about this and the Fox News poll, but there's a problem for Joe Biden. Now, in, in the real-world data, they say 51% are backing Joe Biden versus 40% for Trump. I actually think that more people are supporting the president than the polling uh, acknowledges. I think it's it's less than 5%. Uh, I think you'd be, you would be detecting it more if it was otherwise. Uh, but I, I do get the sense, like Jamel Hill, I want to talk about this when we get back. Jamel Hill... Uh, of the Atlantic uh, tweeted out over the weekend that if you support Donald Trump, you're a racist. And this is the prevailing wisdom of culture today, that if you support President Trump, you are in some way a racist. And I think there are a lot of people who do not want to be shamed, harassed, bullied, badgered, or anything else. Uh, and so they're just flat out denying that they're going to vote for the president. I know people in that scenario. Now, I also know people who supported the president in 2016 won't vote for him in 2020, and they're not saying anything because their family will be mad at them for not supporting the president. I think those two groups exist. The question is, which is bigger? My suspicion is that the bigger group is of those who are not um, publicly supporting the president and privately are. But I do wonder about the offset. Now, that being said, I think there's a 10-point gap in the polling, and there's not 10% of people out there uh, who aren't supporting the president who really are. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's uh, three to four percent potentially. If the president can narrow the field to there, I think he has a strong shot of winning. But here's the thing that's not getting the headlines in the polling. 
A whole lot of Americans these days have an unfavorable opinion of Joe Biden, which you knew was going to happen, but it's starting to go up pretty rapidly that Joe Biden, his unfavorables are escalating quickly, more than a third of the country. Now, it used to be only about 11 or 12% had an unfavorable opinion of Joe Biden. They liked him. They just wouldn't vote for him, some of them. Well, now you got about a third of Americans have a negative opinion of Joe Biden, and it continues to head in the wrong direction for Joe Biden. One issue, though, that's not affecting Joe Biden is the president's arguments about Biden's mental state. I suspect there's a way to make them, but right now that's not registering with people that there's a mental issue with Joe Biden. Uh, A targeted ad campaign could totally change that, I suspect. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. I, I, I risk, I risk fury. I want to say something. We'll we'll get into the polling and the president will leave. And you know, I was going to start the show with the with the meet uh, with the Chris Wallace interview, but I'm I'm not. I want to I want to tread dangerously into territory. And you know, I, I'm I'm I mean this very seriously because you say this sort of stuff, even though it's true. There, there's a lot of truth you're not allowed to say anymore. There are a lot of things that are explicitly, obviously true that you can't say. And I want to I want to talk about um, what's going on out there, and it, it is dangerous ground indeed. Jamel Hill is the uh, idiot writer at the Atlantic who was at ESPN for a while, who decided to politicize everything and see racism and everything. Uh, ultimately, uh, ESPN claimed they were standing behind her. Ratings kept going down. People started tuning out her broadcast, uh, Sports Center, and, and she was ultimately uh, pushed aside. She's now at the Atlantic, where naturally, uh, when you see racism and everything, you guess what? You find racism and everything. It's funny how that works. She tweeted over the weekend uh, that if you vote for Donald Trump, you're a racist. Not he's a racist, but if you if you support Donald Trump, you are a racist. In the same way, you've got the Nicole Hannah-Jones, the woman who believes that uh, Africans came to the New World first and the proof is the Aztec pyramids. Uh, she has rewritten American history for the 1619 Project in the New York Times, explicitly choosing to ignore key parts of early colonial American history so that she can claim that slavery uh, was the basis of the revolution and that the revolution against Great Britain was essentially a slaveholder rebellion against uh, the, the motherland because the motherland was going to start getting rid of slavery. Never mind Wilberforce didn't come on the scene until towards the end of the revolution and wasn't successful in getting the British Empire to really I- engage against slavery until the early 1800s. No, no. The revolution was about propping up slavery. The common thread between these two women is that they have figured out a way to make money off telling progressive, rich, white people what they want to hear. Progressive, rich, white people want to hear that this country is inherently bad and that everything they don't like is racist. Now, they don't want to hear that the stuff they like is racist. They want to hear that all the stuff conservatives like is racist. They want to hear all the stuff that that they don't have a stake in is racist. And, and progressives really have no stake in the history of this country. They want to fundamentally transform this country. So you, you can say it's racist, and that just gives them more credence to upend the constitutional order, get rid of the Electoral College because, you know, it's racist, get rid of the Senate because, you know, it's racist, get rid of the states as, as semi-autonomous countries because, you know, that that's racist. Everything is racist. And it is cottage industry has now grown up to tell rich white progressives 
everything they hate is racist. I mean, here's another racist thing. Uh, the Politico magazine has this big story up about Larry Hogan. Larry Hogan has become the the cause celebre of, of the left right now because he's the Republican governor of Maryland and he does not like Donald Trump. And he's writing a book. It is forthcoming on how uh, the Trump response was to completely screw up the coronavirus, not give Maryland what it needed. His wife had to work with South Koreans to get anything. And, you know, multiple people, including other governors, including some Democrats who were on that phone call, on the phone calls between the governors and Mike Pence said, Larry Hogan never raised these issues. Larry Hogan never came out and uh, raised issues with Donald Trump and his team about not getting supplies when he was on phone calls with them. He saved it for a book, much like John Bolton saved all of his complaints for a book. That's what everybody does these days. No one wants to lead. They want to write a book. Well, uh, someone named Cheryl Cashin is cashing in on uh, racism. She is a professor at Georgetown University and the author of Loving Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy. And she's currently working on a book about the role of residential segregation in producing racial inequality. And color me surprised, I guess, that uh, a woman who finds racism and everything finds racism in Larry Hogan's decision not to create a subway line through Baltimore. It was a $900 million project subsidized $900 million from the federal government to build what they call the red line a project that would have connected uh, inner-city black residents of Baltimore with areas of growth in her framing of it. Larry Hogan is skeptical of these rail systems. He doesn't think that they pay for themselves. He didn't think that it was financially sound, uh, and he has uh, maintained his credibility or maintained his a skepticism of light and heavy rail subway lines through Maryland for his entire administration. And according to this woman, it's not that Larry Hogan can look at the data and say they're not getting their money's worth. It's not that he can look at the data and say the project overruns are going to be crazy. It's not that he can look at the data and say that uh, they're lowballing the number and it's actually going to be five times higher and bankrupt the state. It's not any of that. It's racism. It's racism. Everything is racism. You know, I got to tell you, as someone who actually believes there is racism in this country and as someone who believes this country still has work to do and as someone who believes that uh, individual liberty actually is uh, one of the biggest things we could do in this country to help combat racism, hearing all of these people blather on about racism all the time really makes me not want to even engage in the subject because inevitably what happens is if you look at something like Larry Hogan building a subway line and say, no, this wasn't racist. It was cost overruns. He was afraid we're going to bankrupt the state that was already in a precarious financial position. Well, then you're a racist for not saying that it's racism, which gets me to Robin D'Angelo. Y'all have probably, I've mentioned her once. If you listen to me that day, you may know who I'm talking about. Uh, Robin D'Angelo is a writer, a white woman who wrote a book called White uh, Fragility and essentially claims, tells, what again, this is a cottage industry of telling rich white progressives what they want to hear, that uh, whiteness itself is racism. She is an anti-racism trainer. Let me, this is Jonathan Chait at the uh, New Yorker, not exactly a conservative. 
The anti-racism consulting industry does deserve both some sympathy and some credit. Its intention to prod white Americans into more awareness of their own racism is beneficent. And their premise that white people are often unaware of the degree to which racial privilege has enabled their success, which they can mistakenly attribute entirely to merit and effort, is correct. American society is shot through with multiple overlapping systems of racial bias, from exposure to harmful pollution, to biased policing, to unequal access, to education, to employment discrimination, that in combination sustain massive systemic inequality. But the anti-racism trainers go beyond denying the myth of meritocracy to denying the role of individual merit altogether. Indeed, their teaching presents individuals as a racist myth. In their model, the individual is assumed completely into racial ideology. One of D'Angelo's favorite examples is instructive. She uses the famous story of Jackie Robinson. Rather than say he broke through the color line, she instructs people instead to describe him as Jackie Robinson, the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. It is true, of course, that Robinson was not the first black man who was good enough at baseball to make a major league roster. The Brooklyn Dodgers decided out of a combination of idealism and self-interest to violate the norm against signing black players. And Robinson was chosen due to a combination of his skill and extraordinary personality that allowed him to withstand the backlash in store for the first black major leaguer. It is not an accident that D'Angelo changes the story to eliminate Robinson's agency and obscure his historic qualities. It's the point. Her program treats individual merit as a myth to be debunked. Even a figure as remarkable as Robinson is reduced to a mere pawn of systemic oppression. One way to understand this thinking is to place it on a spectrum of thought about race. On the far right is open white supremacy, which instructs white people to fight for their interests as white people. Moving to the left, standard issue conservatism tends to discount the existence of racism and treat all problems in pure colorblind terms as though racism has been banished. That's not really true, but then he's a left liberal and doesn't really understand us. To the left of this is standard liberalism, which acknowledges the existence of racism as a problem and complicates uh, simple race-neutral solutions. The ideology of the racism trading industry is distinctly to the left of that. It collapses all identity into racial categories. It is crucial for white people to acknowledge and recognize our collective racial experience, writes D'Angelo, whose teachings often encourage the formation of racial affinity groups. The program does not allow any end point for the process of racial consciousness. Racism is not a problem white people need to overcome in order to see people who look differently as fully human. It is totalizing and inescapable. Y'all, there is an entire industry of rich white people telling other rich white people that they're all racist and that everyone else is racist. And the only way to improve themselves to not be racist is to form racially, racially conscious groups. There are black voices in the media whose entire existence and income is owed to telling white rich liberals what they want to hear. Jamel Hill being one of them. Nicole Hannah-Jones being another one. Kudos to them for figuring out a way to profit off of it uh, by telling white progressives exactly what they want to hear. That this country is bad, that everything and everyone is racist, and that if you don't support left-wing causes, you yourself are racist. You know, there is real racism in this country, and all of these arguments undermine it. You want to see real racism in this country? Go to your local black community and notice how much Planned Parenthood advertises for the extermination of black children in those communities. There is your real racism. Look at 
how close. Uh, but Planned Parenthood overwhelmingly puts its abortion clinics right near black communities uh, so that they can exterminate black children because the founder of Planned Parenthood was a eugenicist racist who liked Adolf Hitler. And that's actually a fact. But you would never know this from the historic revision. It's just striking now how people are really, I mean, people like me who have tried to explain to you that, yes, I think racism is real and it is a problem and it's something we as a country have to deal with. And then I see all this stuff and like, why, why, why even bother at this point? Why, why bother at this point? Why bother dealing with the issue when you engage the issue to begin with and immediately they're going to tell you, hey, there's racism everywhere. Everything is racist. Do you know? I, I worked for an organization for a year and there was a good white progressive who was in charge uh, as the vice president of internal affairs of this company, which meant he oversaw the building and the grounds and everything else. And one of the things he wanted to do was to install uh, automated hand washing stations and, and the towel dispensers and stuff like that. So, you know, you, you much like they have in most airports these days and a lot of restaurants, you put your hand close to the sink and the water automatically starts. You never have to touch anything. Very sanitary. I sent him an article from Slate at the time, back in the, this was the early 2000s, after he had converted everything. And I sent him this article that, uh, you know, the hand-washing sensors, they actually don't do a good job of picking up black skin. The, the darker your skin pigmentation, the worse these sensors did at the time. I assume they're improved now. But at the time, it, they weren't very good. And, and that there were allegations of racism in the programming of these sensors because they can't detect uh, dark skin. The man was outraged and decided he had to change everything back. Now, I don't think he actually ever actually wound up changing everything back, but I do think one sink in each each bathroom had to be converted back to manually turning on and off uh, to combat racism, of course. It is, it is a religious ideology that these people have, and they go out and they find the, the high priests of this religion and they elevate people who tell them exactly what they want to hear. I mean, every single person out there, myself included, we want to be told the things we already believe because it is affirming to all of us to be told the things we want to hear. Whether it's the virus, whether it's on racism, whether it's on politics, whether it's the election, whether it's on polling, whether it's on your favorite TV shows, you want to hear the stuff that affirms what you already believe because it makes you feel good about yourself. We all want to feel good about ourselves. And we now have a segment of pundits out there and writers and people in the press who their entire job is to tell rich white liberals what they want to hear about race and racism. It's not them. It's the Trump supporters. It's not them. It's the police. It's not them. It's the governor of Maryland. It's never the rich white liberals. In fact, you come for the rich white liberals, they're going to circle their wagons very fast. Look at what happened in Massachusetts when Ted Kennedy was there. Uh, you had a, a movement to integrate schools in Massachusetts, and the Kennedys stood in the way. They, they didn't want those inner city kids coming to their schools. School choice, rich white liberals hate school choice, not because of teachers unions, but because they don't want those kids and their kids' school. They'll never admit it, but that's what's going on. 
Rich white liberals want to be told everyone else is the problem, not themselves. Everyone else is racist, not them. And look, they have an entire plethora of voices out there to tell them exactly that. And oh, by the way, we need to get rid of the Electoral College and and everything else because that's all racist because the country was founded on racism because the New York Times 1619 Project says so. There is money to be had in anti-racism, and you are seeing a lot of charlatans and fringe people make a lot of money and become very prominent by telling rich white people what they want to hear in the anti-racism movement. And guess what's not actually changing? We're not actually having meaningful, real conversations about changing problems in this country. We're just too busy telling rich white people exactly what they want to hear. I, 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 you've probably seen the story already, but l- let's let's laugh at it together. It actually is very funny. Uh, This is Michael Goodwin at the New York Post. It's far worse than I thought. In addition to the many links between the family that owns the New York Times and the Civil War's Confederacy, new evidence shows that members of the extended family were slaveholders. Last Sunday, I recounted that Bertha Levy Osh, the the mother of Times patriarch Adolf Osh, I think that's how you, O-C-H-S, supported the South in slavery. She was caught smuggling medicine to Confederates in a baby carriage, and her brother Oscar joined the rebel army. I have since learned that, according to family history, Oscar Levy fought alongside two Mississippi cousins, meaning at least three members of Bertha's family fought for secession. Adolf Osh's own Southern sympathies were reflected in the content of the Chattanooga Times, the first newspaper he owned, and then the New York Times, the latter published an editorial in 1900 saying the Democratic Party, which he supported, may justly insist that the evils of black suffrage were wantonly inflicted on them. Six years later, the Times published a glowing profile of Confederate President Jefferson Davis on the 100th anniversary of his birth, calling him the great Southern leader. OSHA's reportedly made contributions to rebel memorials, including $1,000 to the enormous Stone Mountain Memorial in Georgia that celebrates Davis, Robert E. Lee, and Stonewall Jackson. He made the donation in 1924 so his mother, who died 16 years earlier, could be on the founder's roll adding in a letter that Robert E. Lee was her idol. In the years before his death in 1931, Osha's brother George was simultaneously an officer of the New York Times Company and a leader of the New York chapter of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. All that would be bad enough given that the same family still owns the Times and allowed it to become a leader in the movement to demonize America's founding and rewrite history and put slavery at its core. As part of that revisionism, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and even Abraham Lincoln are suddenly beyond redemption, their great deeds canceled by their flaws. But shouldn't such breathtaking self-righteousness include the responsibility to lead by example? Shouldn't the Times first clean out the Confederates of its own closet? That was the question last week. It is now more urgent because of the new information. A week ago, I was aware of no evidence or claims that any member of Bertha's family owned slaves or participated in the slave trade. That statement is no longer accurate. I found compelling evidence that the uncle Bertha Levy Oach lived with for several years in Natchez, Mississippi, before the Civil War, owned at least five slaves. He was her father's brother, and his name was John Mayer because he dropped the surname Levy, according to Family Tree. Mayer was a store owner and prominent leader of the small Jewish community in Natchez, and during the war organized a home guard unit. 
Neither the 1860 census nor its separate slave schedule list the names of mayor slaves. They are identified as two males, age 70 and 26, and three females, age 65, 45, and 23. So you've got the New York Times family collaborated in racism and slavery. And now they're rewriting American history to make the founding of this country all about slavery. Maybe they should maybe they should be honest about the the founding of the New York Times that that it was Confederate money, slaves and Confederate money that helped create the New York Times. I mean, we we've gone from a family in charge of the New York Times that was overtly in favor of slavery to a New York Times family that is paternalistically racist. That they believe in some way that that black people have to be told what they want to hear as opposed to giving people the truth. It's unreal. Uh, we, 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 we need to point this sort of stuff out because, you know, that they constantly want to drag people like Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson or George Washington through the mud. Uh, they, they want others uh, to, to tear down statues and give land back and uh, make reparations. Remember, the New York Times has allowed people to say reparations need to be made. Well, when will the New York Times family sell their business? You know, and, and the business is built on land swindled from the Indians by the Dutch. Why is the New York Times not paying reparations to Native Americans whose land they swindled via the Dutch. I mean, if we're going to go down the rabbit hole, we got to go all the way down the rabbit hole. We can't stop where the New York Times wants us to stop. A, a, a true and fair assessment of history requires that we go all the way down the rabbit hole to them giving, selling their building and land and giving the money to Native Americans who were displaced by the swindling Dutch. And then, of course, the New York Times family is going to have to pay reparations for slavery as well because they clearly profited from it. I mean, th- this is this is their logic. We're, we're just using their logic. There's no reason not to. The debates over homeschool and opening schools, whether schools can go back, which grades can go back, how they're going to go back, when they're going to go back, it keeps going, and it can be quite an ordeal. And you know from experience now, I'm sure, because of quarantine and everything else, schooling at home can be quite an adjustment if that's what has to happen. It's times like these that probably mean you need to look at Laurel Springs. Online learning might be new for your family, but Laurel Springs has been doing it for nearly 30 years. They're experts at online learning. They've got the tools and the curriculum your kids need to maintain their learning unhindered by whatever the future holds. And their flexible learning programs designed for students in kindergarten through 12th grade offer challenging, diverse courses. And Laurel Springs is accredited by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. It means that you get transcripts that are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. Register your child at laurelsprings.com slash Eric today. Receive waived registration fee. If homeschooling is thinking of is something you're thinking of, you don't have to be alone. Laurel Springs can help. It's laurelsprings.com slash Eric, laurelsprings.com slash Eric for a waived registration fee, laurelsprings.com slash Eric. Good morning. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. I want to begin this hour by commenting on John Lewis. John Lewis has died, uh, the congressman uh, from here in Georgia. I believe John Lewis had uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, he was a hero of the civil rights movement. He was one of the freedom riders. He was badly, badly beaten 
uh, and and bloodied and rose through life to become a member of Congress in 1987 and stayed. A lot of people memorializing him. And, and you know, culturally in this country and sympathetically, the, the left is dominant in media. And so we're getting all sorts of calls that we got to pass a voting rights act in his honor. We got to do this, that, and the other in his honor. When John McCain died, George H.W. Bush died and the like, or Ronald Reagan even, you, you don't hear uh, calls from the media to pass particular legislation for to honor these people. When when prominent Democrats do, you, you do. It is what it is. Uh, but Lewis is worth honoring and recognizing. And, and to do that, I actually want to play something that sounds like I'm I'm dishonoring him, and I and I want to play it, and then I want to explain why I'm playing it. Uh, a number of years ago, I believe this was 2010. John Lewis, Shirley Franklin, and Andrew Young uh, cut an advertisement for John Eves. John Eves was running for chairman of the Fulton County Commission, that is uh, the the county in which Atlanta exists. And this is the ad. You need to hear this. This is Congressman John Lewis. And I'm Mayor Shirley Franklin. And I'm Andy Young. On November 7, we face the most dangerous situation we ever have. If you think fighting off dogs and water hoses in the 60s was bad, imagine if we sit idly by and let the right-wing Republicans take control of the Fulton County Commission. The efforts of Martin and Coretta King, Hosea Williams, Maynard Jackson, and many others will be lost. That's why we must stand up, and we must turn out the vote for the Democrats on Election Day. And especially for John Eves, for Fulton County Commission Chairman. Unless you want them to turn back the clock on equal rights and human rights and economic opportunity for all of us, vote for John Eves as Fulton County Chairman. Your very life may depend on it. This message paid for by the committee to elect John Eves. Your very life, that was John, John Lewis, and your very life may depend on you voting for a Democrat over a Republican. John Lewis saying that uh, your, your very life may depend on it, that, that Republicans in charge of the Fulton County Commission would be worse than the dogs and water hoses in the streets of the civil rights era. That, that was John Lewis uh, trying to whip black voters into a frenzy to go vote for John Eves by characterizing blanketly Republicans are, are racists who are worse than the dogs of the street. And he was a civil rights hero. And, and by God, listen to him uh, because he knows what he's talking about, I, I, I guess. And you had a, a former ambassador and Mary Andrew Young in there that they're going to roll the your human rights back, your civil rights back, all your rights back if the Republicans are in charge. Johnny's won that election. I, I play that to to not be hagiographic of John Lewis, but to note he was a partisan. John Lewis uh, has refused to recognize the election of Donald Trump, wouldn't go to his inauguration, didn't with George W. Bush in 2001 either. He did in 2005 for, the, for Bush's second inaugural. Uh, called Bush's uh, first election illegitimate, has called Donald Trump's election illegitimate. He was a partisan Democrat, rabidly partisan Democrat, who had uh, openly partisan Democratic talking points, who criticized the other side and, and would raise the specter of racism regularly. And yet, John Lewis, behind the scenes, uh, sought out friendships with people he disagreed 
Behind the scenes, John Lewis, uh, he, he could criticize people publicly, as both sides do, and then be friends behind the scenes. He worked with Republicans here in Georgia on a bipartisan basis uh, to bring home federal money to Georgia, not just to his district, but statewide. Uh, he was one of the people who would build friendships with young Republicans, regardless of how conservative they were or not. He liked to surround himself with people with whom he disagreed politically. I've only met him once. We were both coming back uh, from Washington. This has been several years ago, uh, back when Barack Obama was president, actually. Uh, We were coming back from Washington, and uh, we were at the gate together, Delta flight, uh, back to Atlanta. And I went over and introduced myself to him. He, of course, knew who I was. I was um, doing evening drive in Atlanta by then and uh, commented on, I I can't even remember what it was. Something dumb had happened that day. Someone somewhere had said something stupid. Imagine that. And and Lewis had commented on it publicly, and I went over and told him I didn't agree with him on much, but I agreed with him on that. We had a good laugh. And we we chatted just very briefly before getting on the plane. And then we got on the plane, and, and I had gotten bumped up to first class, and he was sitting in the back of the plane. And he, of course, had to harass me as he walked past that, that of course, the the, the white radio dude is in, in the front seat and the and the man of the people is in the back. We got a laugh out of that. That's the only time I ever encountered him publicly. Um, and my point here really is to say that the man is more complex than the media would allow. Um, that they, they have to lionize him in the way they did John McCain at John McCain's death uh, to contrast with Donald Trump. They are making a partisan point here in death as they have been making partisan points with the spread of the virus. But at the same time, it is worth noting that John Lewis's life is worth commending and praising. And John Lewis himself is worth commending and praising, even as I vehemently disagreed with him on stuff and, and, uh, vehemently criticized him over the years on radio for turning things into race that were not necessarily and using his credibility on that issue to try to make them about race, which I uh, think was bad form. Behind the scenes, the man was a good and decent man who worked across the aisle with Republicans, not just for Georgia, but for the betterment of the country and counted a number of Republicans, a number of conservative Republicans among his friends. We live in an age now where that's not possible. Um, it is considered uh, two-faced, mendacious, hypocritical to go on TV and, and slam Republicans as racist and behind the scenes have friendships with them. You're not allowed to do that anymore. If you're a Republican, you're not allowed to have friendships with people on the left. I, I tell friends of mine all the time that Donna Brazil, uh, now on Fox, was on CNN, Al Gore's campaign manager, that she and I are friends. And we have been friends for years since we were at CNN together. Uh, she is a dear friend. And I get con- Republicans all the time. Well, you can't really be a Republican or a conservative if you're friends with someone like that. I-, I actually believe that we should be friends with those with whom we disagree. I think that uh, being challenged in our beliefs and not only holding to them, but being able to double down on them and defend them is actually significant and good. It's actually striking to me the number of people who are deeply hostile to the idea of being friends with people on their side. Part of the problem I think we have in this country right now is that uh, you can't be friends with people on the other side. You have a Facebook uh, you've got Facebook friends who all agree with you. Your Twitter friends all agree with you. None of those people are coming to your house uh, to water your plants while you're gone or, or to bring you a meal when you're sick. 
but they're your friends because you agree on everything already. I, I actually kind of like friends with whom I don't agree on politics. And one of the reasons, frankly, is because I spend my entire day talking politics. Radio, five hours a day on radio, I talk politics and news. And I would love to sit down with a friend with whom I agree on nothing in the news and politics because that takes it off the table. We can't talk about it to build our friendship. So we got to talk about sports. Of course, there are no sports right now or family or raising kids or what's going on in the community. Um, there are all sorts of things that you can do as someone who is not so wrapped up in politics. If anything, I think politics has gotten too much space in our society, so much so that uh, even people on the left can't understand a guy like John Lewis anymore. Take, take the Tom Cotton op-ed in the New York Times. If John Lewis were running the New York Times, it I have no doubt in my mind John Lewis would run the Tom Cotton op-ed and then run an op-ed right next to it condemning it but he would run it. And with the kids who are running the New York Times today, they can't even allow Tom Cotton's views to be heard. John Lewis, for all of his faults, and he was a flawed person, but for all of his faults, John Lewis believed in hearing the other side. Now, he may not agree with them at all, but he believed you should hear them. You should not silence them as people tried to silence him marching across that bridge in Alabama. And stuff like that matters. John, John Lewis got on, on a radio ad and told black voters in Atlanta that Republicans in charge of the Fulton County Commission would be worse than the dogs and water hoses of the street in the civil rights era. And I don't really believe that he believed that. It was all a partisan talking point, and he contributed to part of the problem we have in this country where people make everything about race and racism uh, when it's not, uh, and, and using his his credibility as a civil rights hero to advance a partisan agenda, which made other people not take it seriously. And, and I realize you're not supposed to say stuff like that, and we're not supposed to talk ill of the dead, and I don't think I'm talking ill of the dead. I, my point is that he was a more complex man than the media would have you believe, and he did things that I don't think he should have done, and I think privately. Uh, used language publicly that in private he would walk back. But I think he's of a generation of politician that did that. He's of a generation of politician who publicly would be on the team and say the things the team expects you to say and privately build relationships with people behind the scenes, knowing that there was enough grace in society and politics behind the scenes that he could do that and others could do it as well on the other side. If anything has really changed in American politics these days, it's that we lack enough grace to realize uh, in politics that people can say something publicly on TV to try to play to their base and then privately uh, be a different person. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of the guys in national radio, a lot of them are friends of mine. And their public persona on radio is different from who they are off radio. Frankly, one of my disappointments these days is that there are a lot of people on uh, talk radio, conservative talk radio, up-and-comers, not, not the big guys, uh, but up-and-comers who will tell you what they think you want to hear, even if privately they're ridiculing you for believing it. And I, I find that to be more mendacious than anything else. Ultimately, some of them, I think, come to believe the crazy things they're saying, but but they all start off trying to just play to you, tell you what you want to hear as opposed to what they think you need to hear or what the news is. 
right now the media is lionizing John Lewis and oh we got to pass the voting rights act for John Lewis we we got to get rid of statues in Washington DC the the uh, Alexander Stevens statue I actually agree with that uh replace it with MLK or replace it with John Lewis get get rid of that guy but you never see the media doing this when it comes to a conservative. You never see the media doing this with a Ronald Reagan or a, a John McCain or a George H.W. Bush. They lionize the left, never people on the right. They only lionize people on the right so that they can uh, juxtapose them against the current occupant of the White House if it's a Republican, particularly against Donald Trump. When a Republican dies, the media wants you to know the bad things they did. And when a Democrat dies, they don't want you to know that the Democrat did something they may regret. If we're going to be honest, we should recount that uh, John Lewis did do some of these things that he should not have done uh, publicly, but that his is a life worth remembering and honoring because of the good he did outweighed any of those things. The, the, The partisan rhetoric that John Lewis used, you and I on the right can say that we wish he hadn't have done that, But this is a man who put his life on the line and was set upon by dogs in the streets and water hoses and billy clubs by white supremacists who wanted to deny the man, wanted to deny the man not just the right to vote, but deny the man the right to sit at a lunch counter. And he stood up to him and he won. And we don't know the names of the most of the white people who did the violence to him. We know him because he triumphed. And he didn't let it embitter him to the point that he could not go to Washington and build bridges behind the scenes with people on the other side who might have disagreed with him on issues but could work with him to find common ground. And frankly, we need more people like that in politics. People who you you may not particularly like their public persona. You, You may not like some of the things you do. But, you know, behind the scenes, they are profoundly good and decent people who you can work with, people who love God and find common ground with you. And if you're mad at me for saying any of that, that is kind of the point these days that nobody wants to offer grace or accept that people can say things in public to play to their own side and in private actually recognize that they've got to double down and work with the other side. And that used to happen. And to some degree it still does happen, but by and large, everybody just wants to play to their crowd now and they internalize uh, their public rah-rahing. There's something to be said for being as honest as you can and telling, being in private exactly who you are in public, and, and I very, try very much to be that way. But also, but also recognizing that there are flawed people on both sides of the aisle, regardless of their partisanship, though, have lived lives worth honoring. They stood up to others, got beat down literally in his case. And not only prevailed, but actually worked to make our union more perfect, exactly what the founders would have wanted. I am updating how I do the, the recipes. I'm going back to once a week uh, on Wednesdays as I started out. If you want to get on the list, text the word recipe to 33777. I will start sending out recipes again this coming Wednesday. Um, I will send out the chicken recipe I made the other day. Man, it was really good too, um, and along with tips and stuff. I, I had somebody ask me if I would do tips along the way. I will gladly do tips along the way. Uh, You can call in if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to give you the audit trail right now, though, of the virus in Georgia. I've I've come to believe that the cumulative number that the media is reporting is bad. And I've talked to a number of doctors uh, who they now agree with me. So, 
cumulatively since February, we've had 143,123 cases in Georgia, but that doesn't really tell you much. Um, what, what you should note is that uh, we're starting to see a little bit of a decline in the cases. We had a high of 4,169 cases uh, on uh, June 29th, and then we had a, a 4,511 cases on July 6th which was a big uptake in cases, and uh, we're starting to see a downward trend again for now, which is good. Now, we're seeing increases in hospitalization across the state. We've now got uh, more than 2,000 people in hospitals in Georgia with the virus. Uh, Hospitals are getting to capacity in some parts of the state, but... We are seeing younger people get the virus. They're not staying in the hospital as long. And those who are staying in the hospital are responding better to treatment. Now, there are some uh, remdesivir definitely appears to be working, but remdesivir likewise does seem to be in shortage. I actually know a couple of people I've heard from uh, directly who uh, they are having a hard time getting remdesivir as doctors for patients. Uh, One person I know, their uh, wife is in the hospital with the virus and there's a remdesivir shortage. I I know the person themselves uh, and can verify that with them. Uh, I'm still hearing from people who know people who know people who have tested positive for the virus, even though they didn't get the test. Uh, I I know for certain of one person, he and his wife went and, and signed up to take the test and didn't show up and they got negative results in the mail. And I, I know for certain that person, I know their name. I know their story. Um, I have yet to encounter anyone who I, I hear people all the time. They know someone or they know someone who knows someone who signed up for the test, didn't take it and tested positive. I can't actually find those people. And everyone seems hesitant to pass along names to me. Oh, I, I reached out to my friend and I'll let them know. But I mean, if you know anyone, I actually believe that that happened. And, and, and I raise it that way because I actually believe that this has happened. I, I believe. I believe with with um, epistemological certainty that there have been people who signed up to take the test, the COVID-19 test, and the line was so long or something happened and they couldn't go, and then they got the result in the mail and it was positive. I believe that happened. But maybe to a handful of people, maybe a dozen people, maybe, And if you get on Facebook these days, you would think it was happening by the thousands. And I suspect what happened is, let's say it was a dozen people that they know people and and it became a a game of telephone almost. And now suddenly everybody is convinced that they know someone who knows someone uh, when it was really just a dozen people. But everybody talks about it otherwise. Um, I've got a friend of mine who says he knows has someone in his church that this happened to. And I reached out to him and said, I really would like to talk to this person. Because if this is happening, it should be exposed. And that person is now avoiding the friend of mine like the plague. And part of me wonders if that person just kind of made it up. They wanted to be part of the story because that happens too. But the bottom line here is that, yes, the virus has been surging in Georgia. But the treatment is better. The recovery is better. The in and out of the hospital time is faster. Uh, The lack of, of, of overwhelming capacity is there. Um, these are good things. We should be encouraged by some of the news that's out there. It's not all bad. 
Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Well, can I play a little bit of... of, No, I I, I didn't actually ask for that audio because it it was infuriating to me. Now I, I recall. Well, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms says that Donald Trump is behind Brian Kemp's lawsuit and that it's all racist. Uh, This is the woman who on Friday announced that it is all about uh, open carry. Open carry is what's causing the violence in Atlanta. It is remarkable. You know, so I think that Brian Kemp's team accurately believes that he can't get a fair shake in the media in large part uh, because the media is so on board Stacey Abrams and he is de, de, de facto a racist because he beat Stacey Abrams. And so they're not even bothering with the national press. And, and of course, Keisha Lance Bottoms is taking advantage of this and is trying to define uh, what the governor is doing as racist. I actually disagree with the governor when it comes to masks. I, I think he should allow local communities to decide what's best and, and mandate themselves. But the problem is that, and what the media is missing, is that Mayor Bottoms doesn't want to just do that. She wants to roll businesses back to phase one. She wants to shut down gyms and restaurants again. Y'all, I, I got to tell you, in all honesty, I've started going back to the gym. Uh, so I go to this place called Tao Fitness. Uh, it, it's it's CrossFit, kickboxing, regular gym, uh, you, you name it. The trainer is fantastic. The owner is it's just brilliant young guy. Um, makes me feel old, but he, he's great uh, in Macon. And uh, it, I, I love it. it. It is every day at in the afternoon I go, I actually pay extra so I can go work out by myself at a time. You know, the, a lot of, a lot of gyms these days, they, they've got designated times where you can show up and they do in classes. And right now, because of the virus, a lot of it is RSVP. So you don't have a crowded gym. Some aren't. Uh, and, and this place, it, you, you reserve a time a day to go and you go and, Man, I've been losing weight and gaining muscle, and and it's it's awesome. I I hate some of the I hate burpees, y'all. I just I hate burpees. Uh, burpees are of the devil. And now you know you've got these these things they call them devil presses, where it's like burpees with dumbbells, where then you have to stand up and raise the dumbbells over your head. That's even worse. It really is of the devil. But I don't think I could give up now that I've been going back and I've been doing it three four times a week. I I don't know that I can mentally withstand the gym closing back down. It is my outlet away from everything for an hour. My boss intruded on me Friday afternoon. He had to, it was, it was necessary. And, and I was upset that my phone rang during that hour while I was at the gym and that I had to, had to stop what I was doing, even though I didn't want to do what I was doing. Mind you, I had to stop it and go, go talk that mayor bottoms in Atlanta wants to roll everything back. She wants to shut back down the gym. She wants to shut back down the, the, uh, nightclubs. She wants to shut back down bars. She wants to shut back down restaurants. A lot of them are on shaky financial footing as it is. There are ways to navigate through the virus, and the mayor of Atlanta has chosen not to do those things. Uh, what she has chosen to do is the most draconian things, and that I think is unfortunate, and that is why the governor has decided to sue her. It has nothing really to do with masks, despite, and, and masks, in, in full disclosure, masks are mentioned in the lawsuit as just one of the things uh, that the mayor is doing as, as stretching beyond what the governor would allow, but it's not just that. She's actively going out there telling people to shut down and telling people uh, to um, tell, telling businesses they need to close and businesses are confused as to what they actually need to do. 
And so the governor had to take action. But the national media would rather claim that he is a racist for daring to say anything like that, for daring to file a lawsuit. Meanwhile, you've got the mayor of Atlanta with a a violent uptick in crime in the city, particularly guns. And she's saying it's open carry is to blame. Now, I I don't know about y'all, but open carry as a law exists in the state of Georgia. You've got concealed carry and open carry in Georgia. Uh, it, It is more restrictive in who can open carry in the state. But you've got laws and they're across the state of Georgia. And no other part of Georgia is seeing an uptick in crime, which suggests it is not open carry that is the problem. It suggests it is the mayor's leadership in Atlanta that is the problem. And the mayor is relying on a sympathetic media whipped up into a frenzy over race and racism these days to claim racism uh, uh, by the governor and the president against her, as opposed to taking responsibility for her own actions in the city of Atlanta, and her actions are the actions that led to a death of an eight-year-old girl. And if it was any other politician, the national media would be blaming them for the death of that eight-year-old. But because Mayor Bottoms is both black, female, and Democrat, she gets a pass. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, by now all of you should have heard this terrible story, this mother pulled off University Avenue from the internet and or from the internet, from the interstate and did a U-turn in the in the parking lot across from the Wendy's where Rashad Brooks was killed by the police officer. Protesters had taken over the area. The mayor had asked the police not to clear them out. The protesters carried guns. Uh, some of those protesters were not from the neighborhood. They were just there, doubled down on, um, doubled down on their claims And when the mom turned around in the parking lot, they opened fire on her and killed her eight-year-old. Had the mayor had the police do the job they needed to do, that eight-year-old would still be alive. But instead, she decided to tell the police to stay away. And then when it happened, wanted to blame everyone else but herself. That's not real leadership. And it's disappointing. You know, what the left tells you all the time, what the media tells you about Donald Trump is that crisis reveals character and that Donald Trump, therefore, doesn't have good character because his handling of the crisis isn't good. We hear that every day on the news. If crisis reveals character, then what we're learning about Keisha Lance Bottoms is that she's not up to the job of being mayor of Atlanta. And yet she gets a pass by the national press because the national press would rather attack Brian Kemp. The phone number, if you want to weigh in on any of this, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Greg in Fayetteville, going to go to you first today. Welcome to the program. Hey, uh, I just, one of the things that I thought you were missing on Mayor Bottoms to add to the list of woes is not only did she want the masks to be, for, to be able to do masks for Atlanta. She wanted masks across the state, and so did several of the other mayors. They wanted somebody else to be responsible for doing it, and they're busy looking at everybody else instead of doing what they can, you know, not exhibiting leadership of working in their patch 
you know, looking at somebody else and complaining about somebody else's long grass when theirs is neck deep. So, you know, it just yeah, yeah. You know, it, it is very interesting to watch them. Uh, none of them are governor. Uh, none of them ran for governor, and yet they have strongly held opinions on what the governor should do in all other parts of the state, as opposed to taking ownership of their own city and demanding it. And, and you know, one of the frustrating parts is the mixed messages she's sending out there about wanting businesses to shut back down. Well, I, I don't understand why a business should shut down when the mayor of Atlanta uh, has refused to do the things that she should do in order to contain the virus in her city. You know, and this is part of the governor's lawsuit. The governor of Georgia has said in his lawsuit that he issued mandates for cities to comply with. And that Mayor Bottoms not only refused to comply with those mandates and, and uh, let mass gatherings happen and uh, ignored social distancing requirements and the like, and... Now she wants everything shut back down. And there there really is, I, I think, there, there's no business in allowing everything to shut back down when you've got a situation where if people would socially distance, if people would wash their hands, if people would cover their mouths with masks or, or whatnot, if the employees would cover their mouths with masks, you could actually contain the virus. Now, I, I mentioned the first hour, by the way, because I've gotten this uh, a lot from people as to uh, why is the virus spreading in California when California has refused or California has a mask mandate and the virus is spreading in California. Why is that? And I looked into that and, and you know, I, I, I looked into it. Because it is, it, it's one of those things that people have thrown at me, that the virus is running unchecked in California, and yet California has a mask mandate, so maybe the masks aren't working. And I dug into it, and you know, you will not be surprised to learn. They never enforced it. In California, they've never enforced it. They waited until two weeks after all the George Floyd protests and riots in California when the virus started surging again. They waited to impose a mask mandate. They didn't want to condemn the, the people who were protesting. In fact, they said that those people had the right to protest. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And then they did it. And of course, the virus escalated, rapidly escalated. And then they imposed the mask mandate. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't enforce it. San Diego, California, one of the largest counties in the state, never actually implemented an enforcement mechanism. They weren't enforcing it. You could walk around the city without a mask, even though the governor had issued a mask mandate, they wouldn't do anything. In Los Angeles, they issued one citation. In Beverly Hills, where masks were mandatory by order of local government, they never enforced it. In San Francisco, they've never enforced masks. Only Friday, 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 this past week, this past Friday, 
a month after mandating masks, did the governor decide that they were actually going to crack down uh, on masks and he was going to ask uh, local governments to crack down? That, that's absurd. They, and, and, you know, this gets to Brian Kemp's point as to why he didn't want to mandate masks. He didn't want to mandate masks. Because he knew that it wouldn't, it, people, most likely, a lot of people wouldn't comply. He's been trying to tell people that they should wear them, but he doesn't want to turn you into a lawbreaker, and he doesn't want to degrade respect for the rule of law by making a mandate that he can't enforce. And he doesn't think he can enforce it. And he doesn't want local governments to just use it as a revenue opportunity. And so I get where he's coming from. And, you know, now they've got a real problem in California because now they're starting to think that uh, they may have to shut things down. And and we're having a, a surge. Listen to I want to play you. This is a Mayor Garcetti from Los Angeles. Keep in mind, in a month of mandating masks, Garcetti did not want to acknowledge the protesters could spread the virus. Only two weeks ago did he start acknowledging that the data showed the protesters spread the virus. He did want to mandate masks. Masks became mandated a month ago last Friday. And Garcetti, as mayor of Los Angeles, refused to enforce the mask mandate. Now listen to him over the weekend. Among the hardest hit states right now are Texas, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, and California. Now this spring, tight restrictions had California looking as though it might be a success story, but the virus has resurged there. And now Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom is rolling back many of those efforts to reopen. Joining us now, the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. Mr. Garcetti, Mayor Garcetti, thanks for joining us. So this week, Los Angeles County saw both its highest number of daily new cases and new hospitalizations since the pandemic began. Now, when L.A. shut down back in March, there were 231 confirmed cases in the county. Now there are more than 150,000. What happened? What went wrong? Well, Jake, I think a lot of things uh, went wrong, um, but here where we've had fewer deaths than many of the big cities and our rate of increase hasn't accelerated as much as others, we're kind of in the middle of the pack. Uh, we've seen no national leadership. We've had to stand up testing centers on our own. We've had to do so much uh, that is outside of our lane because of the lack of national leadership. Uh, but also, I think that there are people who are just exhausted. They were sold a bill of goods. They said this was under control. They said this would be over soon. And I think when leaders say that, people react and they do the wrong things. They stop distancing themselves. They stop washing their hands. They stop wearing masks. We were the first big city to mandate masks in America when nobody else was doing it. And it took another month and a half to see that at the national level, more than two months for our president to don a mask. So this was politicized when it should have been unified. We were left on our own when we should have had help. And we know this will be a marathon. Stop telling people this will be over soon. Uh, let people know that this is a marathon that we have to uh, kind of push through every single mile. And if we don't come together as a nation with national leadership, we will see more people die. Uh, notice he said that they mandated masks in Los Angeles. Notice what he didn't say. They were unenforced. Notice, notice what he didn't say. They weren't enforced. They gave one citation in a month. They've given one citation. Um, I, you know, it, it's, if we're going to put these people on TV, we need to ask them the, those tough questions. What, what's, why do you mandate without enforcement? Because I assure you, I've seen the pictures of the people hanging out on the beach in Los Angeles. They're not wearing masks. 
I've seen the pictures of people walking around. They're not wearing masks. And yet he wants you to believe there was a mask mandate. This is allowed, by the way, counter-programming of, of some people who want you to believe that the mask wouldn't work, saying, well, look at California. The masks aren't working there. Well, yeah, they're not working because nobody's wearing them. They're not even enforcing the mandate. And he wants to make it about national leadership. I'm sorry, y'all, but I've got, philosophically, I have a real problem. I mean, maybe we deserve the virus. If everyone's looking for Washington, D.C. to save us as opposed to ourselves, this goes back to me on Friday talking about Calvin Ball. Everybody's kind of playing by their own rules right now, making up the rules as they go along. And when you see the media condemning one group of people for protesting, demanding we all protest with the other group of people, is it any wonder people have decided, you know what, I, I got to figure this out myself and do what's best for me and my family. And everyone's arriving at different conclusions. You can't blame them with the mixed, muddy messages. And that has nothing to do with Donald Trump. That has to do with local officials being more willing to cast blame than take responsibility and try to find a solution. Nobody wants to actually get us through the virus right now. Everyone just wants to blame the other side. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Those of you who are listening up on WRGA in Rome, uh, you need to be careful. There's a Karen on the, a rabid Karen on the loose, apparently. (laughs) Wow. I saw this and and I had to do a double take. The headline, this is at WRGANews.com. Woman bit another woman during altercation downtown. Uh, (laughs) A 32-year-old Rome woman was arrested early Saturday after biting another woman during an altercation at the Harvest Moon Cafe. I believe I've been to the Harvest Moon Cafe in Rome. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I have. Yeah, I, 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 yes, I believe that I have. Um, According to Floyd County jail records, after being placed into custody, Crystal Marie Staley of a Morgan Place dress took off her handcuffs. How did she take off her handcuffs? She took off her handcuff. Wow. She Staley began hitting on the window, yelling at the arresting officer, was spitting inside the patrol car. She reportedly had several drinks for her birthday. Wow. That's embarrassing. And now some dude's talking about it on the radio. Yes, I've been to the Harvest Moon Cafe. I have. Um, man, that's, that's, yeah, sad, but nonetheless, it gives me a story to talk about. Um, be careful out there, folks, be careful out there <laughs> now in, in another one, um, th- this one, this is going to get you that this is, this will, well, we got a minute. I can delve into this. I got serious. I want to get to the Chris Wallace interview. I, I really do. I've been dragging it out because I keep thinking, oh, I need to talk about this instead. I'll get to Chris Wallace on the other side. But right now, a naked burglary suspect has claimed he was doing psychedelic mushrooms with Jesus Christ. Who can cast the first stone? A Kentucky man was busted, buck naked, inside a stranger's home after claiming he had ingested hallucinogenic mushrooms and was playing a virtual reality video game with Jesus Christ. 
After an early Thursday morning 911 call regarding a male suspect running down the roadway completely nude and hitting passing vehicles with his hands, another emergency call reported an alleged burglary in the same Owensboro, Kentucky neighborhood. Uh, cops encountered John Stephanopoulos, no relation to George, standing in the home completely naked with a substantial amount of blood and mud on his body, claimed he had been playing video games with Jesus Christ after taking hallucinogenic mushrooms. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to call and say hi, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got to begin this hour with Donald Trump's interview with Chris Wallace. He sat for a full hour with Chris Wallace. Uh, People said he he wouldn't take a tough interview. He's only wanted to play to the crowd. He was willing to sit down with Chris Wallace. I want to play you some of his audio. We'll discuss it, um, but, but I want to actually just let the president speak for himself to hate their own country and to believe that the men and women who built it were not heroes but that were villains you said our children are taught in school to hate our country where do you see that i just look at i look at school i watch i read look at the stuff now they want to change if 1492 Columbus discovered America. You know, we grew up, you grew up, we all did. That's what we learned. Now they want to make it the 1619 Project. Where did that come from? What does it represent? I don't even know. It's so slavery. That's what they're saying, but they don't even know. They just want to make a change. Cancel culture. I hate the term, actually, but I use but, but it. But are they teaching Cancel people culture. to hate America? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Look at the professors. Look at what's going on in the colleges. If a conservative goes on a college. And look, we have as many as them. Excuse me, I think to the best of my knowledge, we're sitting at the White House and the Oval Office is right behind me. We have as many as them. But Who, who's them? The liberal, radical left. And I'm not talking all I think liberal. I, I could tell you I like a lot of liberal people. I like a lot of liberal governors and senators. But but Chris, we have a radical left destructive ideology and it's being taught in our schools. And don't act like you're surprised to hear this. There are books written about it. And we can't let that go on. We can't let them change the true meaning of what we're all about. And that's what they're trying to do. And I don't want it to happen. Not on my watch. It's not going to happen on my watch. You know, I think it's all fine and good for Chris Wallace to uh, to push Donald Trump on this issue. And, and to want evidence for it, but let's not deny it's not happening. You know, there's a report out today um, that overwhelmingly people over the age of 30 view the founders of this country as good people and under 30, uh, slightly more people view them as bad and racist than good. That is a product of American colleges, universities, and, and high schools not teaching American history. That's a product of colleges and universities indoctrinating kids. A part of it as well is kids telling um, others, telling pollsters what they think people want to hear uh, because so many people right now do this. But let's let's not kid ourselves. This is happening, and it is a problem in the country. If I may, sir, respectfully, in the Fox poll, they ask people, who is more competent? Who's got Whose mind is sounder? Biden beats you in that. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's take a test. Let's take a test right now. 
Let's go down. Joe and I will take a test. Let him take the same test that I took. Incidentally, I took the test, too, when I heard that you passed it. Yeah, how did it's you do it? Well, it's not the hardest test. No, but the it last... It has a picture, and it says, what's that? And it's an elephant. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation. Because, yes, the first few questions are easy. But I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five well, questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by 7. And let me tell you, you couldn't answer, you couldn't answer All right, what's the question? many of the questions. I'd get you the test. I'd like to give it. But right. I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. Okay. okay? You, and you I answered about, all 35 questions correctly. You, you talk about how... Y'all... Oh. We're arguing over a mental competency test. Um, you know, here's the problem for the president in this is that the um, there actually are a number of surveys out there of people who overwhelmingly they are concerned about the president's competence, mental fitness. It's one reason why the president's attacks on Joe Biden aren't actually landing blows because a lot of people are actually concerned about the president's mental competence. And I think the president's campaign is going to need to up the ante on this. The president's campaign is going to need to uh, highlight uh, all of the issues with Joe Biden. But notice the president sat down for an hour with Chris Wallace and took his questions. When's Joe Biden going to do that? And, and you're going to hear people start talking about that. I guarantee you, you are, and you should, because people should be asking it. Biden has largely stayed out of the limelight. He thinks the president is costing himself his election. There's no reason for Biden help. That's what he's doing. Well, now it's time to see if, if Biden is willing to do this. Now, one question that's got all the buzz, all the focus is this one. If he wins. In general, not talking about November. Are you a good loser? I'm not a good loser. I don't like to lose. I don't lose too often. I don't like to lose. But are you gracious? You don't know until you see. It depends. I think mail-in voting is, is going to rig the election. I really do. Uh, are you suggesting that you might not accept the results of the election? I, I have to see. Look. Hillary Clinton asked me the same thing. No, I asked you the same no, no, thing in the debate. There is a tradition in this country. In fact, one of the prides of this country is the peaceful transition of power and that no matter how hard fought a campaign is, that at the end of the campaign, that the loser concedes to the winner. Not saying that you're necessarily going to be the loser or the winner, but that the loser concedes to the winner and that the country comes together in part for the good of the country. Are you saying you're not prepared now to come what to I'm that principle? What I'm saying is that I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. Well, okay? Chris. And you know what? She's the one that never accepted I it. agree. She never accepted her loss. And but she it, looks like can a you fool. Give a, can you give a direct answer? You will accept the election? I have to see. Look, you, I have to see. No, oh, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not going to say no. And I didn't last time either. The media is not going nuts over this particular clip. The president of the United States has said that he's he's not sure he will accept the results depending on what happens. Now, I, I there's a reason you need to understand why there's no big deal here and why you shouldn't be freaked out about this. Because the Democrats still deny that Donald Trump was the legitimate winner. I mean, it, it, all we're doing at this point is arguing over legitimacy. Stacey Abrams couldn't accept her loss. Donald Trump, if he can't accept his loss, okay, 
No big deal. I mean, the, the reality of this is that neither side wants to accept the will of the people anymore, and both sides want to scream conspiracy. And I have a real hard time blaming Donald Trump when the Democrats are doing the exact same thing. The, the Democrats cast doubt on Brian Kemp's win. They've cast doubt on Donald Trump's win. They're already casting doubt on the upcoming election. Why shouldn't Donald Trump do what they do? And what's most interesting here is that the media is unwilling to give Donald Trump a pass in the way they are the Democrats. Well, he's the president of the United States. They're running for president of the United States. You've got U.S. senators who refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of an election. That, my friends, should trouble you that these people, some of whom sit on the Senate Intelligence Committee, are using that position to undermine the election. And you can say they're legitimate, but they're not. This is all PR and spin. They don't really care. And yet they're outraged about the president. That That's laughable hysterics on the side on the part of the media. Rockets brand new, 2.5 trillion. I did more for the military than any president that's ever had this office. Veto this because thing? I think that Fort Bragg, Fort Robert and Lee, all of these forts that have been named that way for a long time, decades and decades. But the military and says they're excuse for me. this. Excuse me. I don't care what the military says. I do. I'm, I'm supposed to make the decision. Fort Bragg is a big deal. We won two world wars. Nobody even knows General Bragg. We won two world wars. Go to that community where Fort Bragg is in a great state. I love that state. Go to go to the community. Say, how do you like the idea of renaming Fort Bragg? And then what are we going to name it? You going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton? What are you going to name it, Chris? Tell me what you're going to name it. So there's a whole thing here. We won two world wars, two world wars, beautiful world wars that were vicious and horrible. And we won them out of Fort Bragg. We won them out of all of these forts that now they want to throw those names away. And no, I'm against that. And you know what? Most other people are. And I even, I don't believe in polls because I see the fakest polls I've ever seen. But that poll is a 64% thing, which actually surprised me. We won world wars out of these out of these military bases. No, I'm not going to go changing them. Uh, you know, I'm not going to quibble with people who don't want them left. Uh, I'm... I don't know why the president, though, is dogmatic. I, I, I honestly, uh, in all honesty, I had no idea that Fort Bragg was named after a Confederate. I, I really did not, and apparently a, a not very competent Confederate. I'm not going to re-argue over this stuff, but this is something where I think the president goes out on his own with his messaging and probably needs a little more nuanced messaging for a lot of people, uh, in large part uh, over this and the virus. You know, the polls show, though, that nobody cares about this issue. No one really cares about the culture war issues. It's like, you know, white suburban women are the least likely voters in America to find the founders racist. They don't want that culture war coming. They're focused on the virus. If the president can get a handle on the virus, the president will win re-election. This is the thing that about the masks that I actually find uh, somewhat odd is that uh, the, the growing data out there is that it does work. Um, if, people, if, if people wear masks, it does actually work. There, there actually is more and more data out there that it works. Uh, if the president could turn it into a campaign issue, 
he could probably get most of his supporters out there tomorrow wearing masks. Uh, but right now, the loudest voices on his side are raising questions about the efficacy of masks. He could get people wearing them, turn it into a campaign issue. Uh, but the president is skeptical of them as well. And I don't blame him for a skepticism, nor do I blame anyone else for their skepticism. When several months ago, we were getting con- contradictory advice. I get it. I totally get it. But the science has moved on. We're, we're seven months into a virus of which we knew very little in January and February. And most of what we did know came from Chinese propagandists. It's just, it, it's a fascinating uh, time to to be in politics and watch this and see. It seems, it, it just from my vantage point, it seems like the president's team is doing everything they can to hand the race to the Democrats. And the Democrats are doing everything they can to hand the race to the president. Both sides are stepping on each other. It's just, it, it is a weird time to be in politics. Speaking of the phones, let's go back to the phones to Gail in Canton. You're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I have one comment. I think that Brian Kemp's beef with Mayor Bottoms is not so much related to the mask mandate as it is to the economic rollback that she placed the city of Atlanta back to phase one on along with that mask mandate. And I think the media is focusing on the mask mandate issue because that's the controversial thing right now. But if you listen to his um, press conference, he repeated that he was concerned about the economic impact on Atlantans, on the businesses, if they rolled back to phase one. But when the reporters came in and asked all their questions, every single question was about the masks because that's what's more controversial. And I give kudos to Brian Kemp for thinking that we are adults and that we can make a decision for ourselves regarding whether to wear masks and when to wear masks because, as you said, it's a very controversial issue. Gail, I, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, I I agree with you and, and have been trying to, to point out to people that if you actually read the lawsuit and so many people listen to Keisha Lance Bottoms and didn't actually read the lawsuit, masks are referenced right. in there. But you, you get to the, the, the bullet points of the lawsuit of what they're demanding. It has everything to do with the mayor sending mixed messages to businesses that they need to shut back down. It has very little to do with masks uh, and, and the mayor claiming that she has some level of enforcement. Uh, to be able to do stuff, which she doesn't, and yet no one wants to pay attention to that fact. Yes, and that's my point. I think that should be, you know, spoken about more, and I I don't think it's spoken about enough, um, along with the fact that the rise in cases happened after all the protests in Atlanta. Right. Which yes. Brian Kemp brought brought out in his press conference gently, but he wasn't forceful about it. You know, he made his points, but he wasn't forceful about it. But if you listen to it, those are the points. Yeah. Look, I I appreciate you calling very much and and saying that as well, because, you know, it's one thing for me to say, but here's somebody who lives in the Atlanta area who's paying attention to this stuff. And it is absolutely true at this point that the protesters were a direct link. Uh, there, There was not a lot of data at first, but at this point, I mean, you can clearly see the surge. Now, here's the thing. It's not just the protesters. The protesters are not the cause of the surge. It is people. And some of those people were protesters. 
Some of them were not protesters. Some of them were uh, in other solutions. And some of them were out there having a good time and, and partying on boats at Lake Lanier and the like around Georgia, among other things. And you can't just say that it is the protesters. It, it is a lot of people not doing what they need to be doing. And, and you know, this again, the governor going around the state telling people, if you don't wear a mask, we're not going to have college football. That, that should be enough incentive for a lot of people to wear a mask. And I just think that the media doesn't want to give the governor an honest take. And because the media doesn't want to give an honest take to what's happening, it's raising suspicions and skepticism of a lot of people about the coverage they're getting. And it's allowing people to go out and try to find their own information and they're getting taken advantage of in some cases by disinformation campaign. And I can't really blame them for wanting to go out and find information because you look at the way the media is handling this and you're getting distortions in the media. The media is telling you stuff that's not true. I think a lot of people on both sides, frankly, are telling you stuff that's not true. I'm getting hell from both sides for for one uh, pointing to the studies the the recent studies that show masks work from friends of mine who think masks are, are uh, disaster theater, and I'm I'm getting beat up from the left for daring to point out that there are people on the right who have valid points about schools. You know, there's actually a lot of data out there that elementary school kids kids who haven't reached puberty yet are not transmitters of the virus. It, it makes no sense to shut down elementary schools. Now, there's an argument for high schools and middle schools to be uh, closed or, or rethought, but there really is nothing, no argument for elementary schools to stay closed. Little kids are not vectors of this disease. Now, that is not to say, let's be clear here, that's not to say they can't get it, and it's not to say they can't spread it. But there are, frankly... Uh, issues uh, with regard to the virus that impact older kids than younger kids. And there are ways around it. And there seems to be plenty of data out there now that elementary school kids aren't going to pass it to their teachers and get their teachers sick or anything else. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to see the level of disinformation across the board out there about this virus right now and and try not to be mad at people who are spreading willful disinformation and and, and that it's very clear they're spreading disinformation. They're, they're circulating gossip and treating it as fact. All of these things I think are problems right now. And it's very hard to, to really figure out what's going on. You've got to actually spend the time and dig through the research and figure out what's what. But consensus consensus is not necessarily right. There are lots of consensuses out there. I mean, the consensus in 2016 was Donald Trump was going to lose, and yet he won. Uh, but consensus among scientific research is somewhat different than political science. Doesn't mean it's always right, but does mean it, it more often than not is right. And uh, there are a lot of people who don't really care what it says. They just want to have their views reaffirmed. Uh, if you think masks work, you're more likely than not going to gravitate to research that says masks work. And if you think masks don't work, you're going to gravitate towards research that says they don't work. I may be the only person out there who's actually changed my mind on masks. Everyone else had a dogmatic belief to begin with. 
nonetheless, um, we've exhausted the topic, I think. Uh, The governor is going after uh, the mayor of Atlanta and the city of Atlanta in his lawsuit, not over the mask issue, but because they're threatening to shut down businesses and he wants to protect them. When we come back, we need to move completely out of the realm of politics. I'm going to warn you right now. We're going to talk some politics and news, but we also need to talk theology, whether you want to deal with it or not this morning. It is a Monday, but J.I. Packer has died. Uh, And if you don't know who he was, uh, he's one of the most influential theologians of the last hundred years. Uh, His theology actually helped shape the views of a pope, even though he was Protestant and Reformed, no less. And I want to talk about him and his impact on the news of the day when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, I want to talk about J.I. Packer, uh, which most of you listening probably do not know him. Uh, Some of you will. Uh, but he has died. Everyone is focused on John Lewis. It's interesting. In in an earlier age, uh, the passing of a man like J.I. Packer would have gotten massive media attention uh, because he was a theological giant of the 20th and early 21st century. Uh, one of the most influential theologians in the last hundred years, his writing, his book, Knowing God, influenced uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Benedict the uh, Sixteenth. Let me read you one of the quotes uh, from J.I. Packer. There's a method to my madness here. We're going to be monologuing here. J.I. Packer wrote Knowing God, and one of his most famous quotations, this is a book everyone, whether you are a a Christian or not, should you should read Knowing God. Um, It is an it's an intriguing, interesting, fascinating, well done book. And here's one of his quotes. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as a father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Uh, Paul the Apostle wrote in Scripture that we are adopted as as, uh, sons of God. It's a big deal within Christianity, the idea of, of, of the fathership of God. And I got to tell you, uh, it's an interesting contrast to both sides in politics right now who want a daddy. Everybody in politics these days seems to have daddy issues. And particularly for people of faith in politics who are looking for political solutions uh, to problems like persecution. So, you know, in in, in the Bible, Jesus is very specific that uh, you're, you can have wealth and, and houses and food and money. And if you're Christian, you're going to get persecution along with all of it. Being a Christian doesn't exclude you from wealth and success. It's not a method of it. That's why the prosperity gospel is a heresy. It's not a method to get you wealth and prosperity, Uh, but it doesn't preclude you from being wealthy and and prosperous. I know many rich uh, Christians. I know many more super rich people who are godless. But it's possible. 
Uh, but you're going to get persecution along the way. Look at the Green family of Hobby Lobby uh, routinely maligned in the press for being Christian. In politics, though, everybody wants a daddy. Everybody wants a daddy to take care of them. Uh, yeah, a lot of the right right now, Donald Trump is the strong man who's protecting us from the left. W- without Donald Trump, things would be bad for us right now. Culture would be terrible, according to some, but Donald Trump is term limited unless you are a man of conviction who believes what you really say and you're going to fight for the overthrow of our constitutional republic and impose Donald Trump as a dictator. I mean, at some point, you know, there's no such thing as permanence in American politics. The only way to get that permanence is to install a dictator. Sometimes the other side does win. The left, which is godless and secular, remember the Democrats booed the, uh, the inclusion of God in the Democratic Party platform and said the state is the only thing we all belong to. They want us permanently attached. Now, this is, this is I, I'm going to apologize in advance for the nightmares this image is going to cause. But progressives are fixated on the idea that all of us should be collectively permanently attached to Uncle Sam's man boob. We should be suckling on Uncle Sam's man boob, and I guess they're going to give him estrogen supplements so he can lactate for all of us. I I, I guess. I, the whole thing is ridiculous. Um, the, the, the idea that all of us should be just, just uh, Uncle Sam should give us everything. Both sides have daddy issues. Uh, the left wants us all attached to Uncle Sam, and, and, and the right believes supposedly superficially in the idea of rugged individualism, although we're now told that's racist, you know. Uh, but uh, the, the the right says we're, we're individuals, except we need Donald Trump to protect us. We can't protect ourselves. Uh, and he, he Donald Trump will either go away in, in November or January of next year or in January 2025, he'll go away, depending on how the election comes. And the odds are at some point a Democrat will come back into the White House who is to the left of Donald Trump. And then what will you do? Well, a lot of people have abandoned uh, this whole idea of fathership in, in Christianity, particularly Christians in politics, are so fixated on what they can get out of politics that they've almost abandoned uh, faith in, in God. They want a politician to protect them, not their father in heaven. And now this is where I come to a moment of, of dangerous statement. It's like racial reconciliation in the church. We make idols. Our mind, the human mind, to quote Calvin, is a perpetual forge of idols. Let me read you what John Calvin wrote. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, Another is added, the God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind, in that way, conceives the idol, and the hand gives it birth. We create idols in our heads, and then we act it out as as we believe the God in our head wants us to act out. 